0: Hey guys, thanks for listening to episode 7 of the Rough Stuff podcast. This is the second half of our welding and fabrication Q&A. So if you haven't already listened to the first half, make sure to go back and give it a listen. We hope you enjoy this episode and please send us feedback to podcast at roughstuffinc.com.
1: Set up on welders, welding tips, MIG and TIG, tube notching, roll cage making, bracing, reinforcing, when to add guests, etc. So, um... I don't know how you guys would explain setup on welders. They're yeah. all different. Yeah. I mean, you
2: could have the crappiest uh, Harbor Freight, but if it's set up right, it's I mean, your 110 will
3: do just fine for most stuff. Well, I, won't, you, I won't use them, but you could have two of the same. Let's say you had a Miller 252. There's two of them in the shop. Both of them are going to be different. Yep. Every yep. welder is different. Yeah. We
2: have four 252s, and they're all different. They're all different beasts from the day. Down yeah. on the wire, depends on the roll of the wire you have, too. You could have all weld the same brands, and it could be just a bad bad wire or bad gas, or, or it's too cold that day, or you've been welding all day, and then your tank's starting to freeze up, and it just changes
4: everything. You just mentioned something, too. As Dan mentioned earlier, temperature yeah. is an, a heavily overlooked issue. With dead, dead
2: winter, or dead
3: summer. It could be. Yeah, yeah preheating. Like in the summertime yeah. in California, well, we didn't have that many 100 degree days this year, but like if the ambient temperature in your shops. Like seventy or eighty degrees, you know, don't really need to worry about it if it's, you know, eighth inch material. If it's thicker, like the stuff I deal with now, you still have to preheat it. But then when you get into winter time, and the shop's thirty degrees, you especially chromoly, like you you should be preheating the joints before you're welding them. And does the heat? I mean,
1: is, do you think it just affects the? Um, material too, or I mean, because you got the, the power right And it brings the, everything wood, to a normality, when the, really. When the, you're adding so much yeah. heat
2: to it, it's just the material is now more the temperature you weld it to.
1: Because I know, even here at rough stuff, we have two different transformers, and I you know, there's welders on one, and welders on the other, and they all weld different. And it's also during the summertime, you got breakers popping and stuff, right? So that affects the, the lines as well, right? So that has to affect the weld at the machine, too, mm-hmm. right.
2: Yep. Yeah, electricity definitely yep. depends on weather too. Yeah, yeah, if you
3: don't have good wire, the ru- the wire that's in the wall isn't big enough to support the machine you're trying to run. It's not getting quote clean power. Too long of a cord. Too long of a cord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's millions of variables for for welding.
4: I'm a believer. I don't know if Dan is about this, but I I kind of believe in like my mig welder. I tend to run a little hotter. Or if it's a TIG welder, especially, like a TIG welder, a lot of guys will like dial their TIG welder down to whatever they think it's got to be. Mine's pretty much at 200 all the time, unless I'm doing something really big, then I crank it up. So even if I'm doing something real small or a real low amperage, I'm running my machine. I don't ever change it. I don't know if you do.
3: No, well, I've tried to tell people that are, they're getting into it or newbies at it. You kind of use the same theories with, with stick weldings. If you're running an eighth-inch rod, your amperage needs to be 90 to 130, 140 amps. So if you do that with TIG welding, whatever you're, whatever you're trying to weld to your welding eighth inch tubing on a chassis, you sh- you should be between 120 and 150 amps. And I always lean on the higher side so that when you start, you can hammer down. And then when you get halfway across the tube and it's heating up, you have room to, to dial back to and dial it back. still stays the same. But if you're doing 3 16 quarter inch material you should be 180 to 250 amps, which a lot of people don't have. Tig welders that go over 200 amps, let alone the torches are rated for 200 amps.
2: And what's huge too on a smaller scale for the guys in the garage with MIG welders. I mean, I don't know what welders you have, Joe.
4: Just a 210, just, one one MIG welder.
2: Just 210 Miller. Yep. And you've always had Millers. he's Dan always has the old ones, and I've always surprised with him because in our shop we have, I don't know newer equipment. We have a Miller 350P, and we have. We have uh, some vintage 221s two, two or whatever they were back in the day or 221s or something. And then we have three 252s and the newer ones are the digital readouts. But you go up to Dan's place and he's got all these old, old, old vintage welders that he just can't get rid of in love and just sources them out <laughs> from nowhere. Barn finds. And all of his rolls of wire are exposed. He has like 10-foot leads. Um, and I've never welded with such a smooth welder before because we have these 15-foot leads because i have jeeps and everything we got to get around and big trucks and tables and all that kind of stuff so you want these long leads to get there but dan's old 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 goldie with the exposed roll that is exposed to the environment and dust and whatever i'm surprised that it welds so so smooth so that's crucial too is you know check your ground see if your ground wire is corroded or, or if it's getting hard at the end and it's not staying contacted with your material or your leads aren't your your inner liners are smooth they haven't ran over by trucks and you know carts and stuff like that so and your, guys, ju- and
4: your guys aren't winding the lines too tight no exactly
2: yeah. one that's all crucial right there is is the how it's pinched in the rollers uh, how smooth it's come out of the gun your contact tip's not corroded and you know, you always see that and you go to someone's house and it's just like you can't even see the nozzle the tip anymore it's just so filled in so really check your welders and go through it and like if you buy a welder unknown from someone just start replacing
3: the main components and before you even grab it almost and all my machines are, are three phase, and that's a that's a big difference. So they're more industrial base, which is why I got them so cheap because most people that are hobbyists or guys that want to build stuff in their garage no one has three phase in their garage. So I pick up these machines for really cheap. But there are exposed wire feeders, 12 foot whip. 12 foot, yeah. So the shorter it is, and the, the liner that can't get kinked as easily, you have to have it really close to what you're what you're doing but that the wire has less distance to go so there's some runs a lot smoother do you
1: guys have preference on a machine on the brand
3: i've always had miller i i
2: haven't really had the opportunity to weld the lincoln um, and then i have not never done any saw or any of those either mostly millers even in school even welding school has always
3: always had millers i have both i have I have three Lincoln machines, and I've got four or five Miller machines, but they're all... You have a problem. I, I, <laughs>
4: <laughs> There's only one Dan and <laughs> ten, machines, ten machines. Not I, enough arms.
3: I do have a lot of machines, but each each one I have for a specific thing because my. I have a square wave of 255 Lincoln TIG welder that I love for steel, but I have a Dynasty um two fifty that will kick that thing's butt at aluminum, but I hate it for steel. I don't like it. I don't like the way the arc the arcs are totally different. But yeah,
4: well same thing. I've got those two TIG welders. So I've got an older I'm kind of a Miller guy, but I have used some Lincoln MIG welders that are have been butter smooth.
3: Yeah, like the SP two fifty, you know, uh two fifty five.
4: But my I have an old I have one old Lincoln, you know, Air, or excuse me, Miller aircraft or a TIG welder, which is like a big giant machine runs on too much power and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I use keep stays against the wall. And I use it just for welding out like arms and and hard parts. Then we've got a, a a dynasty that is mobile, but it doesn't weld the same in DC. It's it's definitely a different style of arc. I don't know. I couldn't tell you what it is, but I know that the older machine runs smoother. I think it's, it's just much...
3: the difference between the transformer and the inverter machines. The yeah. way that. way that it it works which i don't know how it works but
1: it just does it just we don't know how it does it just (laughs) does
3: yeah i didn't build the machine i just use it
1: um what about bracing i guess yeah bracing reinforcing gussets gussets would probably be one to touch on i mean people can know that right
3: yeah if you're i see a lot of people putting plate gussets right in the center of the tube which I don't agree with because if it is folding at that joint it's just going to pierce the tube it's not it's not reinforcing the joint if you put it flush or overlap the corner the gusset will buckle but it won't pierce the tube or make the tube fail that's my mm-hmm. I would rather make gussets out of out of tubing which I used to make curved corner gussets that took up the whole the whole diameter of the tube so it was all supported so Caleb here, I'll touch
1: on that real quick since you brought it up. But um, he's one of our welders. And he wanted to know he tried to make those tube gussets that you make, and he wanted to know how you make them. Nope, so good. <laughs> Not
3: gonna happen. Still for sale on Facebook. <laughs> I use the mill. That's that's all I'll say. <laughs> They're time consuming. They are time consuming. takes takes a decent amount of time to make those things. Nobody else was making them, so that's I wanted to make them. So to touch
4: on that, though, Dan, so in, in the racing book, you know, anytime there's a single point weld carrier area where you have one tube coming to one area and you're and the load is relying on just in that one tube, that's where you need to guess it. So if you have a node that has four tubes coming to one spot where you've got, you know, a lot of wrap, you you don't need to guess it there. But if you have a situation where, like, say, the A-pillar comes down to the ch- to the chassis, and that's the only thing you have, Whereas a single point where that if it pulls away, you know, it could be catastrophic failure. That's where you want to put a gusset.
1: So like to spread the load out on the tube. So it's yeah. not piercing yeah. or bending.
4: Yep. Yep. Or tearing away or whatever. Yeah. And, a, and a really an A-pillar support legally from a racing standpoint is doesn't count as a gusset. So if you have a, like a wing window kind of, you know, coming down for the A-pillar, you know. So you have an A-pillar. Then a lot of times you guys will use that little triangular. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. That doesn't count as a gusset. Okay. Like at least in the racing world. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a another gusset. I gusset down where the A pillar actually meets the chassis so that there's no single point nor no single tube connection point. That's, you know, vulnerable. You know, that's where you want to have the guys Um You've got other tubes coming in there and there's, there's no there with the tubes wrapping the tube. You're, you're fine. Does that make sense, Dan? Right. Yeah. I, just, I yeah.
2: forgot about the rule book stuff. Yeah. And you're talking about like a tube, another tube run into another tube, not just a plate gusset.
4: Yeah, so if you have, just like I yeah. said, if you have just an A-pillar coming down and mm-hmm. laying on the chassis, that's a single point weld failure. So if you were to gun a rollover, you're relying just on this, just this one weld to prevent, you know, from, if mm-hmm. it was to pull off, then the occupant's exposed to getting hurt, right? So that's where they want to have a gusset typically. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Any, you know, if you're building a chassis for yourself, anytime you have a B-pillar or an A-pillar that's in a vulnerable spot and, and you only have a single point connection, then you want to add a gusset at that location.
1: Next question would be um, using a 110 volt mig welder to get proper penetration on thicker metals proper prep cleaning, proper preheating techniques, cooling techniques etc.
3: everyone's looking at me <laughs> the prep king. I would start if you do you can you can do it with the 110 machine you want to, you would prefer to have it plugged straight into the wall. If you need to run an extension cord, run the shortest, biggest diameter extension cord you can get. Your, with any mig welding, you need a really good ground, like we talked about earlier. So make sure the ground is really good. Grind the scale off, mill scale. Um,
4: tube end prep. Tell them about that one. That's, that's major. Yes, yeah, so
3: when, when you notch a tube... You end up with the legs that actually wrap around, or the points, are are thinner than the inside. So you need to grind those legs back to where it's consistent thickness all the way around, and then put a little a bevel all the way around around the fish mouth, and that will definitely help. Don't don't do it to a knife point. You never want to chamfer something to a knife point. Because you'll just burn that material away. It needs to have meat kind of like left. A root, a root base in a way or something. Like some sort of backing? Yeah. No, yeah. just like if it's an eighth inch thick, just put a sixteenth chamfer on it so it still has a sixteenth leg yeah. of flat that's left for yeah. the weld to burn into. And then...
4: Yeah, a lot of guys forget. They'll, they'll leave that long knife-edged portion of the, of the notch sticking out. And when you actually weld to that, you're actually welding to...
3: You're welding it to nothing
4: to nothing to forty thousand worth. You know it's less than sixteenth of an inch thick material, so mm-hmm. that's not strong. So mm-hmm. you need to get grind that back, that that protruding corner back, so that you are into the base thickness of the material you're welding to. That way, when you weld it, you've got equal spread of load. You know from the weld to you know the parent material on both tubes.
1: What about um, prep, cleaning, preheating, cooling? Yes, are you guys cool clean no clean. clean. You can't.
3: You can't clean it enough. It's not cleaning's not just for Tig welding. And you need. You need to clean the oil off the inside, off the outside. Clean the scale off. You know, HREW, which I wouldn't recommend anybody using anyway. Doesn't have scale, but you you still need to wipe wipe the oil off it using starting fluid, brake clean, acetone whatever you got. Brake clean sometimes actually leaves a little bit of residue. Mm -hmm. so I prefer acetone or I wouldn't use paint thinner either. That that doesn't work very well.
1: When I was learning how to tick weld, I contacted Dan. And uh, I started learning at Rough Stuff. And I also went to Sierra College. And he taught me... I remember you telling me, like, don't, like, you know, cross-contaminate things with, like, you know, different grinders. And can you go further into that, maybe?
3: Yeah, so if you're if you have a flap disc that you've been using on steel and then you're going to be welding stainless and don't use don't use the same abrasives and you're, you're cross-contaminating I mean, you can go as, as far as if you're welding stainless parts but you have a steel fab table like as you move it across the table you're going to put contaminants into it and cause the stainless to rust so you just want to make sure you keep everything the same if you have you should have a dedicated grinding belt or I know they make those cordless tungsten grinders now that you can keep right on your bench but I don't know if I would use if you had a a tungsten that you were using on on steel and then you dipped it and you put it back in there and you're grinding on it now you're going to sharpen a tungsten, you're going to switch to aluminum. I wouldn't use that cordless tungsten grinder, or I wouldn't use that same sanding belt that you used to sharpen the tungsten for the aluminum.
4: I just realized I'm making a whole bunch of mistakes lately. <laughs> I know. I really think, <laughs> re- rethink everything. Okay, you, I, mean, I, got, I got a funny story on the, the contamination thing. And uh, Stefan, if you listen to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, we were making these parts in one of the cars, and I. I kept welding. I'm going, what the F is, what is going on here? You know, like they kept getting contamination. I'm like, what is happening? Like, I'm like checking gas. I'm checking all my stuff. And then out of the corner of my eye, like days later, I'm watching my guy grind some parts. And, and I have a dedicated grinding table. On that table is a, is a chunk of, of like, like carpet, like, you know, regular industrial carpet that we would put sensitive parts on top of. So I would like, You know, if a part was being D eight and stuff, we'd put it on the carpet. He was grinding, and then rather than waiting for the grinder to stop spinning, he would just put (laughs) it down on the carpet and slow it down. And then he was grinding clean parts with the same flap disc. He's putting little fibers into everything. It was putting the nylon. Oh, that'll destroy it. The nylon stuff from the carpet into the metal. The moment I took the, I took the I literally I was so pissed like you know I had a moment you know and I took the car and I just ripped it off the table and like yeah. threw it you know <laughs> right everything well defined from that point on. Yeah. Does
0: he still work there?
4: He doesn't, but but you know <laughs> not he's not in trouble it, or anything. Right. He, I'm not going to okay. throw him under the bus because he's he's a good dude. So um, okay. yeah, I Come mean in, I mean
2: real, Dan has specialized drawers in his b- big toolbox of special wire brushes and they don't share the drawer. They go opposite sides of the toolboxes that's because dan's special yeah especially <laughs> thinking when he was
0: describing that i was like i bet he has separate drawers yeah. for that's it what has files
3: do. over here and yeah you know. well yeah there are i got files that are only get used on aluminum i have files just for steel i have files just for stainless steel there's wire brushes for stainless wire brushes for aluminum wire brushes for steel you this don't is use also them. why
4: not many people can work with dan no yeah <laughs> like i've been in his shop before and i'm like very careful don't like, touch I'm anything like,
3: yeah
5: <clears throat> yeah, so I was nervous. a little bit of
3: a micromanager, but I've, I've been lucky enough that both of these guys have come to help me get out of some bad situations before and try not to micromanage them. To a It's funny, you'll be doing point. something across the
2: shop and you, you look over because you feel you feel an eye on you. It's like dad, you know, in the corner.
3: And it's just like you're looking. It's like, oh, crap, he's looking at me. What am I doing wrong? Well, you got other guys that don't work in the shop and they're using machines that they're not familiar with, but I've had them for decades and I know every little quirk about them and then I'm like oh I didn't tell them that I have to go over there and tell them explain it to them and I'm sure they could have figured it out but I feel the need to explain it anyway
0: yeah you also have to look at your intention your intention is not to be annoying or frustrate people that come into your shop or you work with you're just trying to do it right and keep it really organized so you know I think everybody appreciates it
4: I think all fabricators have that issue like the mic like we're okay. all the same. But we're, we're all micromanagers. Like, I know it's a hard time with me at my shop. I I really struggle at letting letting go with stuff, you know. At the same time, you know, the end result's got to be the end result, you know. And ultimately, it lands on my shoulders if something's wrong.
0: That's part of being an owner as well. Yeah. Your name is on everything. And so, it's your stamp on every piece of work that your employee is putting out and you're putting out. So, I don't see anything wrong
5: with right.
1: it. Coming from like a actually so that advice that Dan gave me about just prepping and cleaning was really important and when I went to Sierra to take the tig class there I brought my own tools and my own sander my own prep stuff because you come there and you have to like use their equipment and it's always bad and uh that helped me hone like my actually my welding like skill because if the well if it's not clean and and it's contaminated. The arc wanders, and, and the weld will never look good. Like you have to have a good base. Is what I learned pretty much from what Dan taught me.
3: So, I would suggest listening to them on that. No, it's like anything. You get out what you put into it. So the more you clean it, the more you pay attention to all the little things, and the better end result you have.
4: <clears throat> Actually, one thing I've, that people have always asked me about TIG welding, especially, and I've always said, that, and I still believe this right now. To me, TIG welding is is 75% prep, 25% skill. Now that 25% is important, obviously. But if you forget that's first 75%, then everything you're doing on your 25% side is negated. Yeah. So if you do all the steps ahead of time to, to properly prep, you know, both mega and t- welding, but t- welding especially. Then the skill part of it can be learned easier. Easier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's dirty, you yeah, can't you focus get, on that skill. Yeah. You do not
2: get as frustrated with clean material. Dirty material, you you, you don't know what's gonna go on.
4: Yeah, yeah. And you don't know why you're why <clears throat> Yeah. You're you're you already you. you're adding an element of why it looks bad before you you know, you're already shooting yourself in the foot before you're ready to, to lay down a good weld, you know. Yeah. So
1: Totally. Um another person brought up anti spatter products and push versus pull with Meg. Do you guys
4: do you guys use the anti spatter stuff or?
3: I don't use anti spatter. I just set the machine correctly.
4: I use anti spatter. I just <laughs> lightly I lightly dust things sometimes, you know, but uh I'm not a, I'm not a huge user of it because it smells like fish sticks when you're done. It, it chokes <laughs> you out. It takes yeah. your
2: breath away on some of the stuff that we yeah. use. Yeah. We'll use it on like um our tables. We'll spray it down, you know, yeah, for the night before yeah. so it sets in and lets it breathe so your table doesn't get all corroded. But um I'll use like some nozzle dip every once in a while on the MIG just so you don't get corrosion and or you know the buildup um but yeah we don't use a lot of anti-splatter
4: yeah i kind of do the same way you do i'll spray the nozzle and i'll i'll if i'm doing something that, like if i have got a fixture table and i don't want to get junk on it i'll like lightly just dust the area you know and that's pretty much it though.
2: Cause you can, you can overdo it. It can contaminate your welds now. Cause that nozzle dip stuff. It'll, if, if it, if you shove your nozzle in the cold, it's going to stick a lot more. If you do it after a little single pass or something, get it hot and stick it in, then it's dripping, then it's getting in your way. And
4: I think the best use of anti-spatter is post weld when you want to get ready for Instagram. <laughs>
3: make it shiny looking.
5: Yeah, <laughs> filter. Is that yeah. like a Snapchat filter? Yeah, filter. Yeah, that
4: or WD forty. Yeah, you,
3: know. you gotta wipe it down WD 40 first Yeah, and then make put it all shiny. On yeah, top of it. yeah. What
1: about uh push versus pull
3: on MIG? <clears throat> and TIG actually, I guess I don't. You know, no, oh, TIG you're always pushing, unless okay.
5: you you're, you're, <laughs> <out of>, you're, <laughs> posi- you're out of position. position
4: <laughs> if you're out of position, you'll do it differently. But yes, pushing.
3: Yeah, 95 percent of the time you should be pushing with, with the TIG. If you're trying, if you have to fill a gap, you can what I call back feeding. So you can, you'd be it'd be like pushing with the MIGs. So you're gonna turn the TIG torch the other way, and you're feeding rod from the backside so the heat, is away pointing away from the rod, and you can, it'll actually let you, fill up the gap if there is a gap on the like thin thin material instead of having it burn away and turn into a keyhole. And then it's a giant mess cause you keep shoving the rod in there and the rod just goes down inside and it's not actually building up. So if you're holding torch in your right hand and you have the, the wire in your left hand instead of normally you would be pushing the torch towards your left hand, you'd turn, turn the torch to your right and then start shoving the wire in with your left hand from behind moving towards the right. that makes any sense that's an expert move yeah well (laughs) i'm not an expert but as far as i've never done it as far as mig (laughs) welding mig welding i've always i've always pulled just like stick welding or dual shield any of that stuff I've always i just pull it i've never had i've seen guys do the little cutaway thing cut an etch you know push first pull and the the difference in the weld nugget to me doesn't doesn't seem very different. Hmm. Like, I was in, I was initially taught push with
4: mig. By one person, and then as time has gone on, uh, I I pretty much pull, everywhere. You know, there might be an instance where you are going to push because of the nature of the joint, but for the most part, pull. And I've found that to be the, the stronger way. I mean,
3: um, when you're doing it around two, it really doesn't matter because you're going in. And- three three different positions because you're kind of doing downhill yeah, and then you end up in flat and then you're going back uphill
4: it's all it's 6g but you're, yeah. you're all yeah i
1: feel like pulling as far as like a like a structural aspect would be stronger because you're slowing down this like you're pretty much slowing down the weld right and you're pushing back into the puddle, right you're forcing that well a right? lot of
2: the, the dual shield stuff you can't pull you'll get slagged the yeah. You can't get. It. You got to push. Like the, the Lincoln 71C material that I've been using on a lot of structural stuff lately. You have to push because you can't. That 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 hardness layer is gonna fall right
4: back into your puddle. But inner shield, you pull though,
2: mm-hmm. right? I, I both. It just depends on the the weld joint. Yeah. You know, it just depends on your position and all that. Yeah. I've
3: pulled and pushed dual shield, and both of them come out. Yeah, I mean the settings are gonna, fine. Yeah,
2: settings are gonna be completely different between push and pull too. You're gonna slow down the wire, speed that wire up, or whatever the heat and all that kind of stuff too
3: what about a fighting um, warp how do you guys deal with that well it's whole other can of worms <laughs> it all depends on on what it is well are you talking i about guess what's
1: most common like in like the off, i guess off-road like so you're building a cage you're building suspension what's going to what's going to pull
3: it's really going to be frustrating <clears throat> one of the biggest things i see if you're building a, a chassis the guys will tack the entire chassis together and then they just start they stick the motor in there, tack the motor mounts, or drivetrain mounts in, and then they start putting mounts mounts for everything. They just mount everything with it all tacked together, and they pull everything apart, and then they start finish welding it, and they go to put stuff back together, and none of it, none of it fits. <laughs> like you need – you should be doing it in either sections.
4: Stages, yep.
3: Yeah, or stages. So if you build the, build the chassis, weld it up. Now start mounting everything else in it because then the whole structure is not moving. But I used to build it in sections. I'd build the subframe. Then I'd build the roof. Then I'd put them in my fixture, and I'd string the door bars. And I'd weld that whole section out. So the whole center of the car is all totally welded. Now you're building the front half, you weld that up. And you build the back half, and you weld that out. I'll,
4: I'll Go ahead. Sorry. This might be something that actually might be help people. And, Dan, you, you guys can both chime in on this one. because So I know, like, for me, when I do a car, I do the motor mount. So I'll tack the chassis together, weld it all out. Motor mounts go in, right? They're fully welded out. The transmission mount is mocked into place, right? But everything else gets welded, then I do the transmission mount. Then I do the head mounts last. After everything's been welded, head mounts are last because, you know. That's the most crucial. Yeah, so I know a lot of guys make the mistake when they're building a rig. Like Dan was saying, they put all the mounts in. They weld everything up. Now, all of a sudden, your your transfer case mount or your transmission mount or your something doesn't line up, and they just make it line up, you know, through brute force. Now it's under stress. That's under stress. Now, when you go out wheeling, now you just crack the tail housing, your transmission, because your transfer case mount is, is under bind, you know, or whatever. And so you spiral crack the, the tail housing, which happens I a can't lot. Know how many times? Mm-hmm. That's like the most common failure, it seems like. Then your transfer case falls off while you're out wheeling, and then you're sad. Then you're
1: sad. I was gonna say probably the most common, not now that I'm thinking about the most common uh, thing that something a normal customer would be, a normal guy would be welding on would be an actual truss, right? And Mm. dealing with that kind of warp because that's Mm. really really common.
2: That's always a hard one. Um, We deal with a lot of of that just welding our normal trusses together. We just get some warp just because there's so much thick material. Then you get up and around the housing section, and that little that little bit of material just wants to reach to the sky. You know, so it's always use a lot of clamps, use a lot of tack when you put it on the axle and jump around. Don't start from right and go left, you know, kind of do opposite of each other and, and bounce around a little bit as much as possible without getting too much heat. Um, and that's, that's the the quick, the quick things. I mean, all these two guys over here, they pull the whole rear end out, strip
3: it down and throw it down onto my beam, and, but they're doing more race car stuff. Yeah. Well, the other thing you can do is you can stitch weld it and if you mark it out in two or three inch. mm mm-hmm. Sections and you go through and you weld. Let's say you're pulling, so you're you start from the left and go to the right in one direction. Then you're going to turn it around, and you're going to weld towards the other the other end point so that the the beads are opposing each other. And that way, it's I've found that it, it counteracts what the other one is doing. Like you do sway bar arms that way, or you stitch weld the truss on when you go through and you're, and you're welding, if you're pushing from right to left, it wants, it wants to banana that way or up. So then if you go and you, and you weld back towards the other direction from left to right, it's going to want to pull the other way. So it's making, it's counteracting the other one that you just did. Yeah. And I've, I've found that way to keep, keep things relatively straight unless you can't keep anything straight unless it's, in a fixture and even after you weld it in the fixture it's you shrunk like in front for a of, under tension right? yeah. it's under tension it shrinks unless you build the tolerance into the part that you're you're doing to compensate for how much it shrinks so
4: i have no idea how this relates to you guys but i know like for for me i know dan does too but i buy back when i do the housings i'm back bending the housing You pre-bow and, it yeah i pre-bow mm-hmm. it and then um
2: but how do you how do you know how much? Because I've always wanted that too. Shh. Ooh, secrets.
3: I've screwed up a few housings, <laughs> and you just you keep going more and more and.
4: Yeah, so I mean, honestly, that I do chase it like yeah. like you know. Well, I will do it. I'll weld a little bit. Kind of know. I kind of have a headed start on where it's gonna move, and then I'll let it cool off. I'll release the pressure, take a look at it, and then assess how much mm-hmm. more I got to do it. You know, it's kind of a you're kind of chasing the tail a little bit, but
1: you know. When we're doing just the the back, the back truss on ours, it's easy because we design our trusses to go around the tube. So you're just you're going like split in the middle, yeah. Yeah, you're going back and yep. forth. So You weld one side, you weld the other, and it it, it preloads it, and then it pulls it back. Yeah, it's it, you can still mess it up. And then when you do the top truss, obviously it's only hitting the tube on one side. Then the truss is now mounted. The the top truss is also welded to the back truss too, so it could pull it forward. So a little bit of planning because we're actually manufacturing the housings like it's a little bit easier to where you can load it if you like um i think Danny even taught me like years ago where you, ca- you can even use like heat to manipulate the tubes and stuff mm-hmm. if you need
4: oh i've i've straightened housings with uh, a torch and ice water and it's amazing how much it will move amazing yeah big big numbers quarter inch three-eighths of inch easily yeah yeah
3: the other thing you can do to a point, if you, if you don't have ends, so you don't put the ends on your housing. If you're building a housing from scratch, you leave the ends off of it. Do the truss and everything. Try to keep it as straight as possible. And then you slide you slide the ends on your bar, But whether it's a uniball or a unit-bearing cup or a spindle, and then figure out what the offset is and then machine it to fit in there. It's, that's really the only thing that matters is that the, the spindles are in line with the differential actually on this topic too with with a
1: let's say like so lewis here he had he bought you know one of the super duty 60s i think it was or just a danny 60 axle but to begin with you could look down the center of it and you could tell it was not straight to begin with from the factory or from being you know on the road for so long
4: a front you're saying right, uh, now,
1: right? Uh, i think it was a front or no he had a four, maybe a 14 bolt. i forget it was i think it was a rear housing i'm pretty sure pretty sure. Anyways, uh, the, the housing wasn't true, wasn't straight. And, uh, and we have, you know, true bars here, so we could r- run that through and, and see it and fix it and, and heat it. But what about people who don't have that, those types of tools? Like, well, how would you check the housing for trueness without a, a piece of equipment like that?
2: If, I mean, if you're getting that serious at home doing that, you might as well just take it to someone who does it. Does it, Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, do that on my own if I wasn't where I'm at,
4: at home. I mean, a good indicator is if the axle won't go in the housing. <laughs> you know, I mean, if it's that bad, you'll you'll obviously see an issue, you know, <clears throat> where, where something's interfering. So I would. I think it was like it
1: was like five eighths of an inch off. Like you could, vi- you know, you could see
4: visibly it. see it. Yeah.
3: I think something you could do if you're trying to weld it on in your garage, you know, take the tires off. Stick jack stands under the under the seas or under the very end of the tube. Get a bottle jack and put it relatively in the center. It'd be better if you had two. Throw some chains around the seas and just put you know get some concrete anchors and put them in the floor. And that's basically the same thing we do with putting it on an I beam. You can't rotate it around, but I mean that would help help fight the amount of warp that you would have if you're trying to put it on your bigger your house mm. and concrete anchors are cheap I don't think the OEM stuff is super straight anyway no. like there yeah. I think
4: their their tolerance is pretty loose and when you figure the multi-piece axles you know they got some slop from end to end and there's there's some give there that they're willing to deal with you know so I don't think that they're incredibly straight as it is he would know actually more than anybody else think like, with that kind of stuff I, I've never really dealt I don't really deal a whole lot with that, with those things. So I don't know how straight they actually even are.
1: The reason I was asking is because like, yeah, if you have a factory housing that's already out of true and then you put a trust on it now it's really, really bad. You know, if it was, if it was out of true the wrong way.
4: Yeah. So yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we all know
4: we all, there's so many examples of guys who have just put a trust on there and just welded it like crazy and they're still wheeling. And it's smiling the whole
5: way. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, I think you can get away with it more if the diff is centered. Yep, and the, the shafts are long. But if you're like a rear engine car, or one one shaft is you know 13 inches, and the other side's 52, you know that short side is is going to show it, or it's going to it's going to blow up.
0: Okay. One of the other questions we got: um, someone wants to know what your guys' favorite welding helmets are.
3: <laughs> I, I still have the same helmet that I started with. It's just a Jackson. It's got a two by two by four standard lens in it. I don't like the. Uh, not a big fan of auto darkening helmets, which I do have one for. Uh, it's a respirator built-in fresh air helmet. Space, the space suit. The space suit. <laughs> <laughs> which I had I had to get after we had my daughter and I actually started thinking about well, I should yeah probably take care of myself and <laughs> be around but I don't I don't like auto darkening helmets that's just my preference I love them
2: I like yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't do the uh, the blindfold test there um, I have a I have a 3m speed glass I got it on you know promo I had an a Miller with the infinity or whatever it is had that one you know forever um, but I like the 3M it's nice. It's wide. I can fit a respirator under there and safety glasses. And cause I had to take it to school and all that. And you had to have that there fits everything you could ever think under there, but it is wide. It's if I was at a table all day, I could totally do that mask. If I'm, you know, in a vehicle, under a vehicle tight spots, I, I would throw it to throw it to the side and grab the other Miller one, just cause it hugs your head so much closer.
4: I've got a Lincoln. It's light. I like it. It's an auto darkening. It's got the big lens. Um, and then I also have the fixed style, like Dan's saying, i actually was, I didn't ever want to change, but as time has gone on, you know, the autos helped me definitely for sure in certain spots where if I'm, you know, if I'm doing an A-arm, I don't ever lift my hood up, you know, I'm just kind of moving things around and doing the next step. And it actually saves you on your neck, you know? And because I'm old like these guys, not like these guys, you know, it, it affects me a little more.
0: So for someone who's starting out, what do you guys recommend? Price range? Where do they shop for maybe their first helmet? Because they can get pretty pricey. Mm-hmm. But if you're just starting out, dabbling, kind of working in your own garage, what do you guys suggest?
2: Try to find a used one. Try to find a guy who has five of
3: them hanging up. That's see if he can really take his old idea. one.
0: That's a good idea.
3: <clears throat> yeah. Well, there's Huntsman and Jackson. The Huntsman's are made out of kind of like a cardboard material and they're, they're super light and they're pretty small. It's also a, a fixed, fixed lens. But that and the Jackson are both under eighty bucks.
4: Wow. Yeah, okay. they're cheap and they're effective. They work and just fine.
3: And it never, you never get flashed. You never have to change batteries. It <laughs> works no matter where you are. That's true. That's, I don't know. I, I still like them. I think if I learned with an auto darkening, that's all I ever had, then that's probably what I would be behind. But i I learned with a, a fixed lens and. Whether you're outside or in low light, or if it's if you've if you got your head up in a wheel well and you're trying to do something and that sensor's blocked by something, mm-hmm. then that's, you know, which has happened to me. Oh, I, yeah. I have the sensor block all the time. Yeah. That's why it's nice. The, you know, the
2: more expensive ones, the cheaper ones will have one sensor top or bottom. The, the nice ones will have top and bottom. So, yeah, if your arm or, or some kind of material's in the way of one, the other one still can still yeah. read it.
0: So, circling back to someone wanting to get started, just starting out, what do you guys recommend for their welding machine?
3: You don't need a super high end machine. It's just a person that's running it. Yeah, I had a small Miller
2: 180. Is that what the little guy's one little, not a briefcase one, but it's a little roll around guy. Just, God, I think it was like 600, 700 bucks back in the day. And that was full everything with a cart tank everything.
4: 175 is the one i had yeah Ambulor. small little guy
2: it did everything it's a 180 it's 110 and it, it just yeah well it's
3: just fine forever to use i started with an sp100 with flux core in it i bought that from home depot i was 16
0: it's okay to buy used, and you had suggested if you buy used, just start replacing.
3: Yeah, just
2: some. go through it, check it out, see if everything runs smooth, and, and really go through it. Because I know a buddy of mine bought a screaming deal on the same vintage miller that I had, and I won't I won't use it just because he's got motor issues. I mean, it just, it's coming. You can feel it in your hand. It's just rough. Mm-hmm. And so there's something dragging it in the motor, and I can't figure it out. It's I think he's got something internally going on. But we
3: literally have the same welder, and I bring mine down to his house every single time. You no, know, most most of the stuff I see on Craigslist is relatively new, and it's it's from somebody that you know went and bought one because they think it's easier, they want to do something, and then they try it and they're like, "Wow, this is really hard," and then put it back up for sale for pretty cheap. I would I would look on Craigslist. I found majority of my equipment's off of Craigslist. Yeah. Same here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Craigslist. Okay. Cool. Now it's Facebook
2: Marketplace. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, do you guys have wire diameter preferences? I know it's, you know, depends on what you're working on, but.
2: Yeah. I mean, on our shop, we got multiple welders. So half of them are set up with three Oh, half of them are set up with three five. Just depends on what we're welding. Um, the main guy in back is three five all day. And like my two preferred welders have three Oh, just cause I'm not welding a bunch of quarter inch and above stuff together all day long.
4: Three Oh here as well. I think the main thing is, it's is the start. The start, you know, arc is easier with 3o when you're doing tube. You know, if you go too thick, it's just that start amperage required. Sometimes we'll make it, you know, kind of skip on you a little bit. But if it's 3o, it'll kind of just it starts initially real, real nice. It starts nicer, um, and it welds just perfect. You know?
2: Yeah, the 35 will have a, it'll it'll come out heavy and hot. You know, it's like you gotta you gotta start going. The 3o you can kind of take your time and you know it's there and you can get set and kind of prepare.
1: Here's another question: um, How to get proper heat on welds, rod in adapters, etc. Knowing what to look for.
3: Does that make sense? I mean, if you can thread the high after you welded it, you didn't weld it good enough. Yeah. <laughs> so you want it. You want it to. You want that to scale up, essentially, or expand? Is that what you're well, saying? Well, you should have. There should be at least one plug weld in it if you're welding a link bung in. Or a bung of any kind that's gonna hold a rod in because it's under tension. But if you put plug welds in it and they're good, and then you weld the end, you let it cool and it's, it's gonna shrink. You have to chase it. Same thing after you send it out to heat treat and come back. You gotta chase it again. Now you're talking. He's talking mostly about big big heim
4: stuff. Obviously, if the if it's an inch and a half tube and you've got a three quarter heim, you're probably fine, right? Would you agree? No. No. <laughs> okay. I don't agree.
3: I would I would say like a half inch high I wouldn't I wouldn't plug weld. And you could probably get away with it also depends on how tight the tolerances for the machining of the threads were. Sometimes they get you yep. think the ones mm-hmm. from CarTech come a little bit oversized and you can weld those. They don't take as much to much effort to to chase the threads
2: in. Yeah, it also depends on the because a lot of people use different types of material too, you know, ten eighteen cold weld or whatever it may be. But also, you know, I, I know our bungs, they only go halfway through, you know, I've seen some from Cartech where it's it's almost two inches of it goes all the way through the insert. The thread. The threads mm-hmm. do go yeah. all the way down. Okay. So when you're when you're welding over that insert, that the part that goes inside the tube, now that thread right there is really getting affected by the weld. Um and instead of where the ones were like we have or I'm not sure with rough stuffs, but um where it stops short. So you're not affecting those threads as much.
1: Depends on the tube adapter for yep. us. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um. Welding on cast centers. Preheat.
4: Well, one trick is is always do the spark test, which is major. You got to know how much steel is actually in the housing, right? So, or in the center. So, um, I'm. It's been a while. So, like a 14 bolt mm-hmm. has less iron or less steel has more iron, correct? Uh, a dana axle tends to have more steel in it so you hit it with the grinder you know flap disc if the spark is very very orange and very has a nice trajectory you know it's very pronounced you know it's got a lot of steel in it if it's if it if the spark fades away and kind of falls away and it's kind of light it doesn't have much steel in it so you have to change your weight you know the way you would approach it when you weld it so um that's pretty much you know
2: Mm-hmm. yeah we'll do it a lot on the 14 volts for you know the, the um the torque arms and all that prep again is key uh clean clean because they're they're from the 80s you know so clean, clean as much as you can wire wheel hard grinding disc, really not gouge into the housing but really get that surface rust and, and muck and whatever is on there off preheat you know a few hundred degrees and then um tackle your joints up and really burn it in and then we have some big thick welding blankets that we will wrap around the
3: housing afterwards just to kind of yeah, cool post, it slower. post heat is important, mm-hmm. and I would go, go as far as saying you should peen it when you're done. Yep, we peen it too
2: <laughs> within our hammer, or just even just a chisel or a hammer, just kind of which I've always done, but I've never really looked into how peening really works.
4: It's it work hardens it, like, it, 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 yeah, it impacts it and 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 like compacts the grain structure somehow,
3: makes it look like hell, but you know, yeah, it works. I always thought about it since I use a needle scaler almost every day now. and. It's kind of the same thing. It's a bunch of little tiny fingers that come out. It's based off an air hammer, <coughs> and you run it over over the weld. You can use it to clean paint, but I'll run it over the dual shield welds or um, stick welds, and it's basically putting a whole bunch of little dimples all over the place, and if you can go get it up onto the, the base material and across the weld, it's, to me, your, your stress relieving any high points. And just trying to make the whole thing blend together. Same things like feathering the ends of uh, welds on thick plate. You just don't want to have stress risers anywhere. That that
4: being said, like if you're welding, like I've welded on fourteen bolts, you know, quite a few times, and 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 Dana axles, whatever. Like they're saying, as long as you preheat it. And you've got in that in this situation a one ten welder is probably not ideal. No. No. You need to run a, a welder that you know got a little more power to it, otherwise you're kinda of wasting your time. Um I've actually watched people build a rig, back it off the trailer, put the brakes on, and have the entire truss fall off the axle mm-hmm. housing. You know, mm-hmm. when they where they weld it to a cast section. And and so um Yeah,
2: my brother's uncle welds, yeah, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
4: exactly. So <laughs> I know a welder. So when you are well into the cast center section, you definitely need to run a welder that's got a little more heat to it, you know, or more poop to it so you can really go in there. And I think even though we're all kind of being particular about it, as long as it's preheated and you are able to put some heat behind it and you've got some surface contact, you know, you're not just like point loading one part of the the housing. I think you'd be fine Mm -hmm. for the most part, you know. Guys get a little too crazy about it, you know. All this stuff you have to, you must do or it will fail, Mm -hmm. It's another one of the situations where you have to trust is designed properly, you have enough weld contact, you know, and whatnot. And you take the proper steps ahead of time. It'll probably be just fine.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of people who use different rods and different wires and stick yeah. and whatever. I mean, yep. yeah, a welder boy used to, yep.
3: used to weld it with Ni 99 mm-hmm. nickel rod. Yep. And most of it, I've never seen any is to fall off of a, never. a cast center. Yeah.
1: What about like on a, I, you know, you see people doing like pitman arms doing like a double shear what about that kind of design i i know um one of the guys was asking me about this too and do you want well to all the way to the splines the heat doesn't stop halfway through it kind of like uh, across the entire length of the pitman arm does that make sense
2: yeah um i don't weld a lot of pitman arms i know you with the gomez brothers
4: yeah so i i actually buy all my forgings from wfo mm-hmm. for my pitman arms and I'll, i do it two different ways i either use the main part of the arm and I'll cut off just the end, and I'll, and I have like a, I can morph, I morph on a, a double shear end to it, or I will, I have a fixture that goes in my uh, mill, I actually hole saw the center of the splines out of their arm, throw the whole rest of the arm away, and I keep the center portion, and I, and I build a, a pitman arm around that, but I don't really do that as much anymore, because the forged arm is so strong, mm-hmm. that's never the weak point, so I've kind of stopped doing it the way I did it in the, originally.
2: And I know Genrite has like a, a TJ pitman arm that's welded slug into it some sheet metal and it's twisted and and all that but it's just it's mega intake actually when i think about it
3: oh i remember phil or phil the um he used to do a lot of conversions on cjs and broncos and stuff and if he would cut cut the pitman arm v it out and weld it back together and then take some like three-eighths cold rolled solid bar and then wrap it all the way around the pitman arm and then weld that around both sides and I've, I've never seen one of those fall off. Yeah, not the best practice to. Start. I would just try not, <laughs> try, try not avoid to not, not to do that. But.
4: If you can buy a pre-made pimpernel arm, buy it.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
4: uh, next question was st-
1: uh, stringers or dimes, and why? As far as welding, like a you know, like doing like stacking dimes or just oh stringer pulling the weld is that what they're called?
4: It, I, have a, I have an interesting take on this one. So, humans are not good at consistent uh, IPM inches per minute travel rates. So, like, you know, we can, you know, a, a person, you know, think about dancing, right? People have rhythm. People tend to work good with rhythm. I, I don't have with, rhythm. <laughs> yeah. Well, neither do I. But I'm just <laughs> saying, typically, what I'm trying to say is that, that humans are better at momentary manipulation. Now, if you compare us to a, a robot that's, say, running a... a you know a six foot weld stringer weld right that robot is being computer controlled it's running at an absolute perfect rate so it's easier for a person to make a beaded weld than it is for them to make a consistently perfect stringer weld that's kind of how i look at it you know yeah, I don't sense. know if that makes sense to you, but that's the way I've always looked at it. No i, I
3: agree with that. I think mm-hmm. somebody a person could probably run 18, 24 inches or something of a, a straight stringer weld consistently, any more than that. that.'s even that's pushing it, I would yeah. say without moving because the move the movement gives you something to me, it's something to focus on and you're just watching this little you know one inch a one by one window, of where the puddle is and you're moving back and going forward moving back going forward and just waiting till you get to, to the end i i mentioned this to dan you know like a few weeks ago so
4: one of my guys was having a little trouble getting his rhythm down with his with his welding i actually went on youtube and i was able to find a metronome you can plug in any beats per minute you want and so he'll put that on the bluetooth on the speaker in the shop <laughs> and it's it's literally tongue tongue Tong, tong, you can hear it. And he, and but that one thing to, to focus, Totally changed the way he welded.
0: I love that suggestion.
4: It was crazy. I I, I, I was surprised. I actually called down, like, you won't believe this, but I <laughs> I did this and it it changed him like instantly.
0: YouTube saved your employees. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they improved your employee.
4: He was already good. I'm just <laughs> saying he was just trying to fine tune his last little bit. He was trying to get that last five percent, you know. He was already fantastic. I so. love that suggestion.
3: I used to count in my head. You know, one, two, three, one, two, three, or you got music playing, which is usually metal, and you're, you're tapping your left foot, it's, you know, it's like usually metal it,
5: the, for everyone. The dance, <laughs> dance is usually death metal. Death metal. It's not metal. <laughs>
3: <clears throat> you're moving your left foot like you're, you're following the beat of the drum, and then, you know, your right foot's on the, on the pedal, and. I prefer too short, you know. or, yeah.
2: or uh, you know, it's got a good beat to
3: it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of those death metal guys—they got
2: the, you know, they got the double, the double Yo, drummer in there. there. Yeah. It throws y'all off.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, one of the questions we got—I realize this is a very open-ended question. It is, how do we make our welds look like yours? Practice. practice. Young
3: Padawan. Do anything for ten thousand hours, you're going to be pretty good at it.
4: Yeah, practice is pretty much all it is.
3: I think that's the biggest problem with people that want to start welding and they just get discouraged it's like it's not you're not going to do it for a week and be awesome you can't do so that goes with anything yeah like you have it's like when i was in school and show up before school well just go in there during lunch i'd leave other classes to go to the bathroom quote and then go to the metal shop and hang out in there until someone came and found me and pulled me back to the other class <laughs> Or even when I started at B&B, it was I'd come in earlier. I'd do it during lunch. I'd stay late, as long as there was another guy there. That's all, all I did. That's all I cared about.
4: Yeah, if you really want to have good welds, you you have to be passionate about it. And you have to like push yourself to like like you saying. You have to practice. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're doing MMA or if you're welding, you get you got to practice and you got to put the time in. So I always, I've had plenty of guys who worked in the shop and they're like asking me the same exact question, and I'm like, uh, you should be here. From when your shift ends until you go home you know grab scrap there's tons of material here you should be welding non-stop that's all there is to it you know
3: seat time just like driving or anything else yeah. Just you need to sit there and just weld pieces together doesn't matter what it looks like what you're welding just sit it doesn't have to be expensive go to go to any metal shop we have a ton of scrap metal that we go
2: through yeah. any fab shop just go there like hey can i dig through your scrap pile go ahead take whatever you want Weld it together and then come back, throw it back in here, throw it away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we do recycle. You know? ours. <laughs> yeah, we recycle ours too. Um,
0: do you guys have any tips for welding beefy parts that are thirty plus years old? Say that again. For building beefy par- or welding beefy parts that are thirty plus years old. So I think they're talking about old metal, old metal, steel, iron, steel, old uh, iron. And I'm gonna guess it starts with cleaning. <laughs> uh,
5: <laughs> yeah,
3: when mean you have. Uh, imagine something that's thirty years old has some kind of layer of rust or old paint and grease that's soaked in, into it and same thing you It's d- all you work on now. Clean it. yeah. <laughs> clean clean it really well, heat it up. Sometimes you have to make you make it a pre- preliminary pass and it's just going to have a bunch of porosity and stuff in it. It's kind of as you weld over it with the first one, it kind of draws and pulls it all out. You go back, and grind it out, and lay another one and it's and it's fine. I guess that would be if you're trying to repair like a 14-bolt housing or something maybe. But Clean and lots of heat. I think the heat is important. Yeah, you burn those porosities and all that stuff out of
2: it
0: what if you're working on a project that's so old it's just rusted out and it just has those big
4: i won't it, give up won't. no yeah I know. <laughs> the rust I you'll know. be
2: if you try to do anything rusty, like in a tub if you're redoing sheet yeah, metal on a tub like, the like a floorboard or you know like old mustangs the floorboards and all that kind of stuff yeah. really cut as much as you can go further than you can because you'll just be chasing that rust yeah. it'll just keep disappearing it's like a you. disease kind of it's, it's uh,
4: just, yeah like you just get rid of it. it i'm a total prima donna I don't even really. We know at that all. Yeah.
5: <laughs> but
0: if someone's working on like a passion project, maybe it's something that was in their family for a long time mm-hmm. and they want to restore it. You suggest cutting out as much rust as you can and trying to.
2: That or not even full welding it. I mean, a lot of these patch kits, you know, floorboards again like that. You can just do do spot welds every one inch or something like that. Just do a plug weld,
5: mm-hmm. you know, and
2: that's how a lot of the factory vehicles are, are put together. You don't have to weld everything. Everything. Yeah. Um, but that's that's sheet metal world, not. You know, big, beefy, three year old stuff. But it's yeah. kind of different.
3: Yeah, like sometimes maybe people don't know or they they forget. You know, ER70, that means 70,000 tensile strength per inch of weld, like per inch.
1: Yeah. This question I didn't understand, but I was hoping you guys would. <laughs> Can you use an inverter and a couple of diesel truck batteries to weld?
3: Well, I mean, you can weld off batteries. You don't need yeah, the inverter. I, I don't know what. What's you don't.
4: The... You don't need the inverter to do it. What? What would? What the? What would the inverter have? So I think what he's thinking is that whoever's asking, they're asking about if you have two 12 volts, you can uh-huh. run an inverter, then go to one ten for or whatever to to weld with. So oh, yes, if you're you trying can...
3: to power a machine off of yeah. two batteries and an inverter to get.
4: Yeah, you could. You'd have power loss and stuff like that, but. I don't.
3: I don't know if that would last very long. I would I would rather just connect the two batteries together and stick weld off of them. Yeah. That'd be yeah. That would be better.
0: Okay, one of the next questions is cooling welds with water before handling bad idea Bad. Um, alter the integrity <laughs> of a weld. And this is interesting because when I took welding at Deloro every single project, we dunked it in a we basically had 55 gallon drums everywhere full of water and we were taught to dip them yeah. immediately and as soon as we pull it out it was like brown and it had all these cracks on it and carrot thinks that my teacher just wanted it done super quick so yeah it's, it it's mostly home. it's a quick
2: thing and it's a safety thing you don't want hot metal letting around but yeah never never quench your, That's your metals with water
4: yeah
2: agreed
0: big no-no good thing they teach it in school
2: i feel like i've seen that on the uh, the sword making shows though Quenching oh, yeah. and oil and all that kind yeah. of stuff, just straight
1: from the. Uh. Are you talking about that, your
0: blade can pet? Whatever, show? yeah,
1: <laughs> that's actually. I, you guys probably actually Dan probably you guys probably know more about that, like quenching the hardened steel. Have you guys dealt with that at all, like making knives or anything? Or
3: I don't make knives, but I've, I've machined like some dowel pins and some other random things, and probably probably wasn't correct, but heating it up. And then cooling it in oil and then heating it up again, cooling it in oil just to to surface harden it. But I've, I've never made a knife or a sword or something. There's some,
1: um, before I was at Rough Stuff, I used to do the ornamental iron work. So I was in like the blacksmithing and whatnot, just very, very briefly, not just really hammering steel and, and playing around. So, but I had some blacksmithing books and the, uh, they had a, like a temperature gauge based off color, like whatever the, what this color is. It's roughly this temperature within this temperature range, and you mm-hmm. want to quench it this, whatever the temperature range was. It was like a light cherry. And then once, and depending on the steel, once you quenched it, it would turn different colors. It could turn like a blue or have like a gold, a, like a gold um, haze to it. And I think like the, the the gold was like the, the higher carbon content. So meaning like if you had like a, say a leaf spring steel, if you did it to that, it would have like that nice gold... Um, wouldn't be completely gold, but it would have like that gold waviness to it, or some sheen on it.
0: Um, tips for welding on the trail: trail breaks happen.
2: Bring like five pairs of sunglasses they don't care about. <laughs>
4: Stack them. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all been there. Yeah, flash you know. burn.
0: What do you guys um, usually do, or what do you recommend?
2: A lot of our our customers and and people we do is the premier welders. The uh, you know throw a dual battery system on your jeep truck, whatever. And then the premier, it's like a, I don't even know how much they're 1200 bucks, something like that for like the little blue guy that goes into your hood and you got cables and, and that's what we've used a lot. Or we've just used two batteries. I haven't used two batteries in a long time. The, uh, what is that? Premier welders, premier power welders, whatever it is, it comes in a little briefcase. You hook up two batteries and no, it's just ready. welder, ready. Well, yeah. Ready. welder. it just has a little five, five pound spool. Um, use that a ton of, ton of times on the trail.
0: Um, Scully Off Road makes a trail weld kit mm-hmm. too. Yeah, from Scully, and that's a pretty cool product as
3: well. I had red. Well, I've, I've I've used a ready welder. They work pretty well, except I don't remember. There's a red and a green light. Yeah, and it's uh, either DC positive or DC negative. I don't remember which light corresponds with what. But the the first time I used it, and you need DC, DC negative with with flux core, and I had it the opposite way and it wasn't working very well some guy came over and he's like no and switched switched the polarity and then i went back to welding instantly blew a hole and
2: it burns pretty hot yeah surprisingly hot
5: it's like it oh, this, like is,
2: this is what it's supposed to do and i'm always fixing bird nests <laughs> in those things
3: always
1: bird nests inside the spool gun spool guns are terrible yeah. <laughs> um last question here or last question from customers i got some bonus questions uh explain to the masses why tack welding
4: to look pretty is not acceptable (laughs) dance point to joe uh well i mean obviously if you're if you're tack if you're there's there's this is pretty big question so let's just talk about mig welding right now so if you're if you're tack tacking so actually pulling the trigger and releasing the trigger you're 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 creating a, a whole series of uh stress or fracture points i guess you can say you know you're not um you know that the when the metal becomes molten you have uh i would say uh more distinct uh gaps between the the flow of material um when you do the tac tac method um i will say this that you turn your machine up high and you do it um i would say it's as good as a a very poorly done standard weld. You know, I mean, there's some notable guys who have done it over the years and, you know, Shannon Campbell is one of the most famous ones. I mean, he's done the tactic method for a long time and, uh, dude's one king of the hammers. So, you know, I mean, (laughs) it says a lot. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) it can be done. Uh, is it ideal? No, it's the wrong way to do it. Like just straight up. It is the wrong way to do it
2: on thick stuff. Sheet metal Thin stuff,
4: real thin stuff. Where you're trying to manage heat, yeah. that's different, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we're talking about, uh, you know, roll cage tubing or 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 brackets for your, you know, that are your mount to your chassis or suspension, it's pretty much an absolute no-no. Just set your machine up right and weld it properly. That's really what should be done. Um, there's also other guys that will take the MIG machine and they'll turn it up really, really high, and they literally whip the MIG. Uh, wire out of the red zone, out of the molten metal. And then it it mimics the tac tac method. I'm not gonna name the chassis builder who does it, but um it it gives you a uh it's got a really big puddle. It looks kinda well I guess some people would say would like would appreciate it. Like the uninformed would go, oh wow, well, look at that. You know, but uh when I see it and I see all the center pins in the in the weld, I'm mm-hmm. um, I I don't like it. It's it's the wrong way to do it, but it's a, it's just a, for, for some people, maybe it's, it's an easier way to get control, I guess.
5: Does that make sense? mm mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, um, probably just, they're going for a look, and they can't, maybe, not can't, but maybe they don't know how to, how to make it look. Right. Like a stack of dimes. Yeah. Doing it the normal way, so that's, that's how they do it. That's how they chose to do it. It's just a bunch of overlaps that, you're cold starts. It's, a, it's cold a, starts. it's a thousand you know.
4: cold starts, which you know is doesn't make any sense. You know, um, yeah. So kind of like pull
1: Like what about like pulse welding or pulse? Do they have pulse MIG too? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But that's okay.
3: that's designed to do it, and it's doing it at a rate of speed that you're, you're, you know, you're we, full. Yeah, you're full. You still. You
4: still. You still have amperage in there. So what he's saying is like mm-hmm. so. You, it, when you do pulse MIG, there is you don't ever have a complete cutoff of amperage. So you're you're you still have a puddle and you still have transfer happening, but it's at a, an increasing and decreasing rate in a, at a very uniform manner, you know. So
3: yeah, it's controlled by a circuit board that's dropping it. It's just like having pulse on on the TIG when you if you're using that for for sheet metal. So it's let's say it's a two hundred amps peak current and it drops down to. 170 which is just enough for the the puddle to freeze before it lays the next one on top of it but it's never completely off and not molten Mm -hmm. yeah and then it's quickly shoving wire back in there and then cools off and that's that way you can just move in a straight line and the machine's basically making beads stacked on top of each other so what's the purpose for what is the purpose for
1: um pulse
3: I think cool. reduced heat heat input, and you could move I mean, move faster. Sheet metal
1: or something It's not not for thicker stuff. Or no, both. They, there's
3: they guys that use, they use it, it on thick stuff. Yeah, or just control.
4: Yeah, it's control. I mean, you can like so if you're automated, for example, if you're doing like like high pro you know, like uh, high purity stainless stuff, which is that's like the most prominent place where pulse is used, and it's mm-hmm. they've got uh, orbital TIG welding heads. There's a whole bunch of different things they use, and robotics as well, uh, robots that that will manipulate around the tube. But um, in those situations, you're doing. <sighs> typically a hundred percent pen. So you're back purging with argon. So let's just break it down. So if you let's say, let's talk about TIG welding. If you're pulse welding with TIG and you're doing a hundred percent penetration with argon backing, open root, open root. There's no issue with that whatsoever. It's a, it's a perfectly acceptable way to, to weld. Now, if you don't have backing or you have no, no, no back purge, for example, and you're, you're, um, you're doing the, the, a pulse method, just to like, you know, let's say you're fusing some material together. Uh, you're doing the same thing as a, as a cold MIG where you've got a bunch of cold starts and, you know, fracture points. And if you really look at the weld under a microscope, the actual puddle has, it looks like a star. It has so many surface fractures on top of it. It's almost the, the analogy I've always used is when you pulse weld in that way, it looks like, uh, like a, a desert, lake that's dried up okay and and, and the reason why it's because it's cooling at a rate that is uh too fast right too fast yeah. so um it creates fractures on the on the surface of the weld so uh you know you you end up with all these little puddles that already have fractures in them
1: it's kind of like t- like welding titanium right if you don't if you don't uh, cool it properly under yeah, you need a trailing
3: trailing gas lamp also gas, yeah. following yeah. behind
1: it. And you can like visibly see those without a microscope, can't you? On on titanium, oh, yeah. I think, right? Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's so basically like if we talk about TIG welding, because Dan and I have gone, we we talk about this a lot. So if you're TIG welding, you know, say you're TIG welding the chassis, the ideal way to do it is to. There's some there's some give and take here, but ideally, you're going to do a consistent. Uh, a consistent amperage bead um, with the amperage size properly for the material and you're going to lay down a pass. Um, If you have like a lot of nodes coming in or you've got like sometimes we'll like we'll we'll double layer some material for example like I will bring a chassis tube and slide it inside another tube for example and there might be a, a node coming right there where it's a little thicker then I might do a cover pass. I might do like a weave over the root pass that I already did, but I don't do it on the whole entire chassis. I only do it on certain, certain locations. Um, but what we see now happening is that people are now taking, and what they're doing is they're doing these rough root passes. Then they go back over with just the pulse for on the TIG and with no filler. And they're literally just, they're basically, you know, uh, remelting the puddle. They're remount remelting the puddle to make it look a certain way. Mm-hmm. So when you do that, that's when that surface fracture comes into play. You're really you're 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 taking away from the integrity of the well itself. You know, it's not really the ideal way to do it. And again, it's one of those things where it's not ideal. Our car's falling apart on the trail because of it. No, but it's still not the right way.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, looks pretty though.
3: You're just putting more heat into it, and it's
4: only eighth inch thick material. Yeah, it doesn't need to be heated twice. Yeah.
0: I have one question. Does a good proper weld always have to look good?
3: Well, I forget it's been in a bunch of old books and it's a saying from been around a long time, but it's you know, ugly ugly welds aren't necessarily poor welds, but it also doesn't show good craftsmanship. Right. You're, yeah. So I want us beauty with him. But
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, not but not every not every pretty TIG weld is, is strong just because it looks it yeah. looks good. Like I would rather people starting out like grab a MIG welder, turn it up, you know, spray your chassis together, and it could look like crap, but it's probably going to hold together. Somebody that's inexperienced doing it with a TIG welder and doesn't stick enough filler in there, yeah. or have the proper heat or anything else, like that's going to fail before that. It's easier to
4: MIG to, weld. to do a bad TIG weld and have it be a problem than just do a do a bag mig weld and have it be a problem so do you agree on that
5: yeah yeah
0: okay um we have some bonus questions and we promise we'll let you guys go (laughs) um what car or build do you guys each feel the most accomplished on
2: a person oh man
0: it doesn't have to be personal it could be a customer's just in general
3: well for me it was Building Jason Shear's car, which was kind of the last the last goal that I had. And I, I remember going to Rockin' at the Ranch in 2003 and seeing him there competing in his little Diablo comp buggy. I was like, I'm going to build a car for that guy someday. And then 2014, boom, here it is. Get to <laughs> build a car for him. And Kevin had a large hand in that, you know, working at WFO during the day and then driving up and helped me till two or three o'clock in the morning and going home, but we were able to do it in, in Mom, two months, yeah. just a long two months.
2: Yeah, that was fun. That was definitely an accomplishment for me just to, to be a part of that and see him go through that. That was a lot, That was rewarding for me. Um, I can't really necessarily say what vehicle because there's a lot of vehicles I've built, but I don't know, over the years to see builds like that or builds like, uh, you know, to see things like SEMA or see things that you've done on TV, it's kind of like, oh wow, I've made it to that point, um, which is which is kind of rewarding as well. I mean, I, I like to see race cars, you know, and that's kind of cool to see your guys win. And that's a huge another step of level and kind of cool thing too that I haven't I haven't had yet.
4: Uh, for me, it's I I, I kind of two of them. I think actually we did a I did with some friends. I built a a '64 Galaxy um, uh, off road car for the Nora series. And that was, I like that build because it was a fun build. It was like an enjoyable build. We did it over a year. It was me and a buddy and um, we got paid to do it. But uh, this car has gotten so much press. It was just an incredibly fun car to put together. You know, um, it's kind of like a lifted gasser off-road car. You know, it's it's all raw, raw metal. It's it's pretty neat looking. And then, uh, so that was amazing for me. But the other one that kind of really, I really felt like was important to me was when I built the IRS car for Marcos Gomez, because it was a, it was a car that I had dreamt up for, you know, six or seven years beforehand. And I, I kind of felt a little crazy building it, you know, like a, like I didn't really know if it was going to work, you know, like from an engineering standpoint,
2: it's mad. If you ever get the chance to go see it, look
4: at the back end of that thing. I don't, I
2: still don't see how everything pivots correctly. It's insane.
4: (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, and, and people kind of thought I was a little bit nutty wanting to do it. And it took some convincing to get him to let me do it. Um, so that one was good because I, it, it and the car is still running. The, the thing is that there's been some other IRS cars tried and with some high profile builders and, and drivers behind them. And I'm not trying to be a, the car we did is, is staying together and is very competitive, you know? So, um, you know, just, it was, a, it was a lot of like, what ifs. And so the fact that it actually worked, and it's still working, mm-hmm. you know. That's cool, you know. Yeah, that's cool.
1: Um, have you ever built anything hack nasty? Yeah, no. my truck. No. I know you guys are still like, just deta- like a lot of you guys, are just detail oriented. So I'm curious what. uh Yeah, I'm definitely. Embarrassed-
2: I'm definitely embarrassed of my early early work. I think I have one. Is I mean, that that first Toyota that I had before the one I have now um, that I shared with a buddy. It's I don't. I know it lives in Grass Valley and Alan at work threatens to bring it down every once in a while and I'm so scared these one of these days he's gonna bring it down. No one's gonna go, Really? Really, Kevin? This is what you did? And it's just like, oh man.
3: No, that's how you learn. I've, yeah, I looked, you have to. I look back at you know what I built my Toyota in my parents' driveway. That's I've actually found pictures of it on my computer the other day. I was like, Whoa, mm-hmm. okay. But that's that's just progression over, you know, fifteen. 20 years you look back and you're like wow why did why did i do it that way mm-hmm. but you don't know what you know now so that's just that's just part of it everyone's going to build i don't know how many tubes i've screwed up over the years like learning how to bend tubing i wasted a lot of material Oh yeah yeah that's just part of it same thing with don't stress on it move on yeah bend it again make another one you know dip in your tungsten how many times you get up to go sharpen it when you start or you get frustrated because you've the gas flow is not right or you hit a pocket that had scale left in it you didn't know and it blew back at you or you're welding a tube and it's built up pressure inside of it and it blows out and splatters your fancy gas gas screen you love those that's yeah
4: i built some hack nasty trucks some tough trucks <laughs> that were pretty hack nasty and you know, the being that they were a tough truck gave me an excuse to get hack nasty and not feel ashamed. You know? So Yeah,
2: I could throw some people under the bus.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
3: right. Like there's some stuff on equipment, you know, that yeah, sometimes yeah. it doesn't matter. They don't they don't care and they just want it fixed as fast as possible. I'm like, okay, and I'll just clean it from the time that I'm allowed and burn it up and they go back to work and that's all they care about. Yep. Sometimes you just don't have you're not given the time to do the work you would like to do. And that's it's part of real life.
1: Yeah. That's kind of like at that repair pit we do at the King of the Hammers. That happens a lot. You're, you're just, there's so many people coming Trophics. in like, yeah, like I, we, we had the, I remember that this I don't know if he listens to this or not, but there's a customer that came over and had like a Jeep upper control arm broken and all their mega holders were taken up and we're cleaning up. And so I'm just like, working on speed and I just grabbed the arc welder and just burn this thing back together. It's super strong. Like it looked it was good, but like you look on his face, he was not happy about the look of it. So I'm like this thing's already broken, you know? Just get another one.
3: Yeah, do you remember that we're in the middle of a lake bed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't matter at this point. I always love when people don't
2: fix the trail fix. Yeah. They just yeah. leave the trail fix. I mean, sometimes oh, hold on. no.
4: That was Marcos actually. You guys, I brought a carbide file to you guys to cut out the upper arm plates when Marcos hit that wall in fall fine. And I don't know if you remember that, but he took out the upper A-arm. Mm-mm. So I actually, <clears throat> I they called me up and I went over there, drew it up on the computer real quick, took, took thumb drive to you guys, had you guys cut out the plates, took a giant bottle jack and jacked against the chassis that you built and literally heated it up and pushed the arm back. Mm. And then I just went crazy with the mig welder. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But he left it like that though. I'm trying to find. It. He left yeah. it like that for at least a year. You know?
3: it's probably still like that.
4: Yeah.
1: Um, another question I've gotten a couple times, like especially like at like shows like Off Road Expo and stuff, where you get people coming up or dads coming up and stuff, and saying, "Hey, my son really wants to learn how to fabricate. Should I put him in like one of those fab schools?" I've given him my opinion. We're all shaking our head yeah <laughs> no that's exactly what i said too but Why? and that, that's some,
3: something What? that's it's better than nothing but like i know not everyone is going to start the same way that all of us started but getting getting your foot in the door like i swept i swept the floor in a shop for six months before i was allowed to deburr parts mm-hmm. like you just get in there and you be quiet and you pay attention to what everyone's doing
4: Oh, a keyword, key thing there was be quiet. Oh, I thought the keyword was sweep
3: the floor. That was key to me. But if you if you pay attention, like that's how I, I was able to start welding, working at that place. I ended up in front of the weld shop, sweeping the floor, and the head welder, was just looking at me. He goes, "You think you can weld?" I just shook my head, and he took his helmet off and handed it to me, and he's all weld that, and I welded it. He's like, "Holy shit, you know how to weld." and then they started letting me do it during lunchtime or come in early and just kept kept doing that
4: and I think the time I think the time you spend at school is I'm not saying that school is bad and there's if you're gonna go become a pipeliner for example and you're learning a very specific narrow thing by all means go to school get your certs go to Texas and become a pipeliner you know um, make some good money but if you're gonna want to be a fabricator like a fabricator not just a welder but a fabricator that time that you spend in school that's time you're you're throwing away you're paying to be at school you're you're not being paid to be at school i would definitely throw myself into someone's shop and and just say i'm here if you can let me weld for x number of hours at the end of the day and you can tell me what you can tell you know i'll be here that's the the absolute fastest way to 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 if you find the,
3: the grumpiest dude in the shop <laughs> who doesn't really like anybody, and if you just try to help him and just do what he says, or anybody, that can go pro- for anybody. Are you projecting right yeah, now? Yeah. No. <laughs> <not>. <laughs> just if you, if you put forth the effort that you're trying to learn and you're not being a smartass, then the guys that you work with in the shop will eventually go, hey, why are you doing it this way? And they'll show you a different way. And then... You keep doing something, and then another guy will come by and go, "Oh, we'll do this," and then they'll just start. You're getting knowledge for free. Yeah, you just you
2: just have to work for it. And, and certainly back, it's like I don't I don't know much about the fab school. I know that's getting bigger and bigger. It seems like I don't know much about it. I think it's probably a great program. Um, on the back of my day, back when I was deciding if I was gonna be a fabricator mechanic, whatever I was gonna be, Wyotech was in my sights. I'm glad I never went because that was would have been a debt, and I don't think it would have panned out ever. But um, you know, we had Weldon school in high school which I don't think high schools have much welding, wood shop, all that kind of stuff anymore. So I did that and it was fun. So you, you get, if you're young enough, you can get into those classes to see if you like it or not. Um, and then definitely getting certified. So I went to American River College to get my search for a while there. And, you know, I had to do the, the pre-classes before I could even do the classes that to certify you. So it was kind of more you get to weld there on different equipment, different stuff, different styles and kind of get an opening there for, for if you don't have access to a shopper, don't have access to a welder, you have to do those things to
1: practice. So yep, yeah, I kind of have the same, same startup as Dan, I guess, where I, I got a job when I was 18 doing the order metal iron work and didn't know how to weld, swept the floors seven bucks an hour. And, uh, during my break, I would just grab a welding hood and sit there and watch the guy and just ask him questions. And we were just welding the railing. So it's like just simple, simple welds. Then, yeah, you just kind of get, keep, you keep pushing and people see that persistence. Yeah. Most it's hard to get to see that. Most people
2: don't do that anymore. Yeah. they just, okay, it's lunchtime. See you. See you for an hour. Yeah. They don't, I mean, there's, like I said, tons of scrap. There's welders everywhere. We'll definitely help you do whatever you want to do. Yeah. We have some ROP kid that's coming up right now. And I don't know, he's not ROP. He's just a kid coming after school. He has two jobs. Um, And he's killing it. He's just, he, you know, he swept floors for maybe a week, you know, and then we saw so much potential in him and he's like stacking parts, cleaning parts and he's hustling and like he, he'll see you struggling with something, will the, you know, drop the broom and help you. And it's like he's just so aware of his surroundings and knows what's going on. So it's like I want to keep him. Whenever he's done with school, whenever he's done with the other job, like he's here now.
4: What's what's his name? No, I'm gonna <laughs> my secrets. Now we
1: have a guy like that too. He started out in shipping, yeah. Then went to. Uh, he really wanted to learn how to weld, so he started on his break and after after work, we allowed him to use all the welders here, and he got really good at welding. Started welding the diff covers. And then, uh, now he's doing, and we, we lacked in receiving, like we had receiving problems. So he's like, I want to help there. And now he, he's like his own department mm-hmm. just like keeps.
2: Yeah. I just saw pushing. my guy yesterday. He's, he's tacking some of our members together. not even know we, you know, allowed him to do that <laughs> yet, but, um, you know, I know he could weld and I know he could do stuff, but now we have, um, he's, I mean, it turned around, he's sitting there with 30 members sitting in front of him. he's tacking all the pieces together. So it's like, that's a great way just to get used to how the, the welder works in a way in, mm-hmm. in production. And
3: all that. I did. I did get lucky at that. So B and B was a production fab shop, and then once they did let me have my own table over there, I just I was welding thousands of parts all the time. There, it'd be stainless for steel mainly, and sometimes there was aluminum. And you'd hop back and forth between TIG and and MIG, but just welding all day. That, I know not everyone can do that, but I was fortunate when I was younger that I had the opportunity to just sit there and basically learn while I was getting paid, which is way better than paying and then having debt out of school.
1: Yeah, exactly. I don't, don't recommend that. Yeah. So one of the guys here was asking me about a post that Caitlin posted at the Dan, <laughs> about you holding a bunch of books. What was that about? In Oregon. In Oregon.
3: Oh, I went I went to Oregon for my father-in-law's wedding and there's some bookstore called Powells up there which was I think it was four four or five story bookstore and I've always I've tried to find books I have a lot of books but she sent me a picture before I went up there they had a hole it was probably six six or eight feet wide and 12 foot tall section of only welding and machining just from the bottom to the top mm-hmm. and I was like buy all of them <laughs> <laughs> so I can't buy all of them so we get up there and I go and she just left me alone I think I grabbed six, 16 or 17 of them it's just it's more more learning you know bought books off Amazon go to used bookstores sometimes you find stuff it's, there's always something else that you can find in in a book and i've had a lot of guys tell me a lot of stuff but i'd also like i like to read and see if there's anything that that pertains to whether it was the welding metallurgy books there's books on um, precious metals like for making jewelry and stuff i got heavy equipment books i have race car specific books but it's i've bought books on hot rods sprint cars dirt track or circle track cars, motorcycles, and you just try to read all of it because there might be something in one of those books that I can apply to something that I'm trying to build. It's totally different industry. And yeah. those guys are published engineers, you know, and not yeah. web warriors that think they know <laughs>
2: yeah. a lot, you know. Totally. I
3: mean, there are people that are on the Internet or the forums that actually know quite a bit, but you can't, can't go wrong with... Mm-mm reading a book written by some dude that's done it for 30 or 40 years. When are you going to write your own book?
5: Yeah. Live. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm.
0: Um, Do you guys have any closing comments? Anything that we didn't cover? Anything you guys want to share? Any really good trail stories?
3: I don't know. I feel fortunate to know both of these guys and there's, you know, Keith that get bent also. I I think a lot of people think most fab shops are always in in competition with each other and it may start out that way when when you're younger and then you like meet the dude that owns another shop and then you kind of become friends with them and realize that they have knowledge too and then you can collaborate back and forth about different things and as far as a customer goes and you're being a dick and let's say I don't want to work for you and you leave because you're gonna get it somewhere else The chances are there's like whatever, four or five other shops in the area that I would know the other shops around that area and I'm going to call them before you get there (laughs) and they're going to know about you. I don't think most customers think think about it that way. I said it the other day, you don't tell the baker what to put in the cake. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Well, thank you guys for coming on. It was seriously an honor to have all of you guys. You're so knowledgeable and we really appreciate you taking the time to be here. We hope to have you back. Um, I also wanted to let our followers know um, you can use discount code Podcast for 10% off your order anytime. And if you have any comments, suggestions, podcasts, guests you'd like to hear, you can email us podcast at roughstuffinc.com. Thanks guys.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks guys.